Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Today I'll be speaking with Wenfei Tong about her new book, Bird Love, The Family Life of Birds. Wenfei is an evolutionary biologist and a behavioral ecologist who is also an avid bird watcher, traveler, and nature guide. As I'm sure you'll agree after hearing our conversation, Wenfei is a born naturalist as well as a gifted communicator whose infectious enthusiasm for these charismatic organisms just can't be contained. But what is perhaps most remarkable about this book is that Wenfei has found a way to use these remarkable animals and their enormously rich, complex, and diverse reproductive behaviors to help readers gain insight about the way evolutionary biologists think about animal behavior. This book will not only teach you a great deal about the wonderful world of birds, their elaborate courtship rituals, and often surprisingly complex and dynamic family structures. It also introduces readers to the theory of sexual selection, cooperative breeding and the evolution of altruism, brood parasitism, parent-offspring conflict, and the consequences of asymmetric investment in the next generation. The list just goes on and on. This book is a real gem. It's brimming with insight, and it does not shy away from discussing complex and sophisticated biological theories and concepts. But it's written in a straightforward and engaging prose style that makes it a real pleasure to read. And it's beautifully illustrated, with several full-color photographs on each and every page. Wenfei Tong, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks, Lucas. It's really great to be here and to talk to you again. Yeah. So full disclosure, Wenfei and I are old friends from graduate school. In fact, we used to share an office together at the Museum of Comparative Zoology on the campus of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I know, Wenfei, I've known you for quite a long time, and I've known you as an avid bird watcher and an evolutionary biologist and an artist and a writer. So I wonder if you could just tell us, our listeners, a little bit about how you came to write this book, Bird Love. Oh, thanks, Lucas. Yeah, I used to really enjoy these conversations we had that ranged everywhere from sort of literature to history and philosophy and philosophy of science and history of science and evolutionary biology. So it was great. And I think a lot of those interests have fed into this book. Um, so it's not just about birds and how they find mates and reproduce. It's really um, applying the sort of Dawkinsian idea of the selfish gene and that view of evolutionary biology, which um, I actually liked a lot when I was in high school, although by the time we met, we were both doing our PhDs. Um, and trying to apply that to a system that I know and love really well, in this case, birds, but also, at the same time, the, the underlying message behind the book is um, also that I would really like people to enjoy and identify with and engage with nature in some way. And birds do so many things that are really easy for people to identify with. And I think that's partly why it's so highly illustrated as well, is just to reach as wide an audience as possible. And the ulterior motive behind all this is to make it sort of accessible to as many people as possible, both in terms of enjoying natural history and not finding science intimidating, even if the science takes the view that's um, superficially rather dark and <laughs> uh, dispassionate and unsentimental. And, and I, tried, I tried to temper this with a few jokes in the book, although that might not always come through. Depending on the reader. Um, no, and- I have to say, parts of the book are quite funny. In fact, I, 
Yeah. Oh, good. Um, yeah, and I suppose how the book really came to be written um, was just an accident of, well, lucky, lucky opportunity. But I've always really enjoyed talking to people about birds and about natural history and evolutionary biology. And um, both, both as a sort of, you know, professor and as a nature guide, so a lot of these stories are recycled from things I tell students in the lecture room or um, think, stories I trot out when, when I'm out in the wilds of Montana um, telling people about birds that they're seeing. So, yeah, I think it was really nice to be able to put that all down in, in a volume. Yeah, thank you. So earlier when we were preparing for this interview, we were talking about it's kind of strange to be talking about birds and talking about this book that you've written at a time when we're all quarantined That's right. or at least under lockdown. Maybe it's not quite a quarantine. It's kind of an overstatement. But on, anyway, under, under lockdown, social distancing with mm-hmm. coronavirus. And you mentioned that actually birdwatching is something that you've not just enjoyed in your life in general, but you, that you've found to be kind of a comfort during this particular moment. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about bird watching during the time of coronavirus? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I've just moved from Alaska to New York City, which is heck of a lot more dense with people. But actually, it's a lot more dense with birds in the spring migration as well, because the poor things have nowhere else to go except a couple of green spaces. So it's really, um, if you want to see a lot of birds in a short time, it's not a bad place to be to go to Central Park or Prospect Park. And I've put up a bird feeder that's stuck to my apartment window. So now I've got blue jays, house finches, cardinals, morning doves, and the occasional house sparrow that sort of keep me company every day now that I'm working from home in the office. I mean, my office is the apartment. And um, yeah, every morning, well, at least we're not in complete lockdown yet. And I like to avoid people as much as possible anyway. So I go really early to Prospect Park and look for birds. And uh, this morning, there was a pair of Carolina wrens that were busy um, courting each other. And that's always fun to watch, to, to you know, see the female kind of fluttering her wings and looking a bit helpless. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, it's such a lovely way to start the day and it's it keeps me sane definitely whether whether it's the time of corona or not not to see a ton of people first thing in the morning and to just enjoy the birds and the sounds and their behavior um it's it's like my morning cup of coffee i suppose Yeah, it sounds almost kind of meditative in its way. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Oh, and I suppose I'm supposed to say how it helps with social distancing, which is... Well, you could uh, say something about well, that. <laughs> yeah, it's useful. Well, you know, I think if you if you walk around brandishing a pair of binoculars, people tend to keep their distance anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because they're not sure. <laughs> they, they, it, it's, <laughs> it's a bit like going into a classical music concert or something. People think they've got to be careful and respectful, at least a lot of people. And then um, another bird watcher will immediately identify you as belonging to the same Masonic club because you've, you're all wearing binoculars. And th- those people are very good about keeping their distance too because 
they're worried that they'll chase away whatever bird that you might be looking at. So, so people sort of hover at least six feet away <laughs> as a matter of protocol or etiquette. And, and so it's kind of, of ask, pre-established yeah, etiquette. <laughs> exactly. And ask politely in hushed tones what, what you're seeing. And then you reply, and everyone enjoys the bird from a safe distance. Um, yeah. So, so bird watchers are co- cooperative as well. So they do oh, reveal very... to each other. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, it's like any ecosystem, right? There's competition and cooperation, which is very much a theme underlying this book. Um, so you've got people who are really nice about telling you where something is and, and what they've seen that's exciting that day. And then you've got people who need to keep the gems to themselves <laughs> so that they can have the, the longest list of um, other, they can be the first person to have seen X number of species that year in that county. Um, but that's rare. Most birders are really nice about sharing things. So I have to say your book, so the subtitle, so the title of the book oh, is yes. Bird Love, and then the subtitle mm-hmm. is The Family Life of Birds. And birds, in your telling at least, don't come off as being particularly nice, or not always particularly <laughs> nice right. anyway. So <laughs> I wonder if you could just, so at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned this interest that you have in, I think you called it a Dawkinsian perspective, this kind of genes right. eye view of evolution. So this is a book about family life and repro- in particular kind of reproductive strategies of birds. Yeah. So if you could just tell us a little bit about what this perspective on reproductive behavior entails. Right. So, you know, as someone with a PhD in evolutionary biology, I think what really drew me to the subject from very early on is the fact that you can get these really impressively intricate behaviors, including love and hate and all these emotions and all these um, tremendously complicated things like cooperative breeders, which have all these dynamics that you know any, any human could really relate to. Uh, all that is the result of some really unplanned processes that accumulate over time. So, so I'm basically talking about natural selection on tiny bits of information which are encoded in our DNA. And that seems like such a, and, you know, tons of people have written about how disillusioning it is to think about the world like this. And I just don't think that's particularly distressing. I think it's, I'm, I'm on the side of thinking it's wonderful that we've got such um, capacity for both compassion and um, a lot of complicated Machiavellian, uh, not very nice behavior, and and all the versions of consciousness, however you want to define consciousness, as the result of a process that doesn't even require a real designer, a real conscious mind to come up with. Um, and so, so I suppose this whole Dawkinsian view is very bleak in some ways because I do write in the introduction that birds are, in some ways you can think of birds as these disposable robots and that's or machines and that's very much Dawkins's metaphor in the selfish gene for passing on these tiny bits of information encoded in their DNA which by definition 
through natural selection would not persist unless they built robots or machines that were capable of behavior that passed on those little bits of genetic code successfully. And so from that viewpoint, all of reproductive behavior or all animal behavior that we see is ultimately the result of bits of genetic code that worked, that, that got to pass more of their copies on. Um, and, you know, you, you and I used to love talking about that in terms of culture as well. So I don't, I don't really see a big distinction between the perpetuation of good ideas and the perpetuation of good uh, pieces of genetic code that are good at getting themselves perpetuated. So I wonder if, if to follow up on that, if yeah. you could. So I think something that, or one thing that attracts many people to birds is their often extravagant appearance, right? That oh, yes. Some birds are amazingly colorful. They're beautiful animals. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're interesting behaviors, right? So very elaborate courtship rituals. So I wonder if you could explain, maybe choose an example or two to kind of give our listeners a sense of, what it is that makes birds so fascinating and how we might explain or understand that particular feature of these animals from this particular kind of evolutionary perspective that you were just describing. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I, one, I think one reason I like birds so much and so many people do, and one reason I thought bird, birds in particular would be a good subject for a book like this um, apart from the fact that I know a lot about them, is just that we're very visual and so are birds. So we communicate a lot visually and um, a, lot, a lot of mammals don't, right? And also they're out at night, so we don't see them. I used to think it would be great to study some sort of charismatic carnival like wolves or something, but good mm-hmm. luck. Half the time it's really hard work just finding the animal. Whereas birds are wonderful because they're there all the time and you can just see them through a pair of binoculars and they that's how they signal to each other a lot of the time too and they and then they sing of course and they call to each other so we're, we're quite vocal as well but um other modes of communication like infrared or sense of smell things that other organisms use especially in things like courtship or you know a lot of ants basically it's all chemical communication we don't have the same kind of ease of access to those forms of communication. Um, so, so I think that's partly why I wanted to focus on birds. And then in terms of a nice example of courtship behavior, I suppose everyone loves, really loves bowerbirds. And this is probably very well known to a lot of listeners because everyone sees them on National Geographic or BBC. But they're the slightly less showy version, uh, relatives of birds of paradise, which are the ones that really show off all the time. And bowerbirds, I like to think of as artists or architects because they they construct things that are called bowers, structures out of twigs, and then they have these wonderful collections of galleries of objects that they painstakingly collect and curate and arrange for the appreciation of females that the males are trying to court. And there's a lot of variation across species in 
what kinds of colors the males like the objects are that males like to collect and uh, the males get really fussy about exactly where everything is placed so <laughs> experimenters can come in and mess up the male's arrangement and he comes home and finds that you know the the little blue bottle cap is not exactly where it's supposed to be and you have to rearrange it and um, one of my favorite experiments that I write about in the book is um, biologists use this fussiness in the males and also their color preferences to give them little sort of IQ tests almost where they would make it difficult for a male to remove an object that he didn't like. So in this case, it was a satin bowerbird and the males don't like the color red. They really like the color blue. So if you put red this objects... This is really cruel. <laughs> if you put a red object in his bower, he's, he comes back and he's like, what the heck is going on? I have to get rid of this. And, you know, they'll do funny things like stick the... They'll, they'll make it a sort of little um, puzzle test, basically. So, so, And then they time how long it takes for the male to solve this little mechanical puzzle so that he can remove the red object. And, and then they correlate that with how many matings he gets. And they find that there's a... The, the quicker the males are at solving these tests that the biologist said, the more, the more females they also happen to attract. So there, there seems to be this selection by females for a certain amount of, you know, for want of a better word, intelligence in the males. It's, it's not just a pretty a display that he can come up with, but they seem to, that seems to require a certain amount of um, I suppose, physical intelligence, mechanical intelligence on the male's part, or problem-solving ability. I I wonder if this might be a good opportunity, if you wanted to, to use this example of the Bowerbird and this this interesting correlation that I I had not heard of this, to explain to our listeners a little bit about the theory of sexual selection and this idea that's perhaps uh, this idea of honest signaling and sexual selection. Sure. Um, Gosh, so... (laughs) Sexual selection theory is, you know, we could go, well, we should go all the way back to Darwin, right? Because um, he's the first. So uh, people always think about natural selection in, con- in the context of the origin of species. And the other main idea that Darwin proposes in that book is this idea of sexual selection, which sometimes goes, seems to go counter to natural selection. And you and I know he had a lot of disagreements with Wallace about this. But anyway, the, the, um, the main idea is that whatever passes, whatever happens to allow an animal to reproduce more will get passed on. And in this case, it's traits like really flashy displays, courtship displays, big feathers, um, a, a painstakingly curated bower, uh, something along those lines. And sometimes this seems to counteract what you would expect under natural selection because it can be a very costly thing to have in terms of survival. So things like a bird of paradise's long tail and, and showy plumage is really not a great idea to have carrying around if you're trying to escape a predator. And the handicap hypothesis was, I think, first proposed by Zahavi. But anyway, the idea there is you only have these really showy, almost cumbersome ornaments if you can afford them. 
and so it's I think the analogy I use in the book is something like if you can't afford a Porsche you wouldn't have a Porsche and this is assuming females like a Porsche um, in, in the male so so that males that drive Porsches or have long tails or whatever are the ones that are worth mating with reproducing with and investing in the next generation with because they can actually afford this very expensive signal that also happens to be attractive. Um, yeah. I wonder if, if you could explain a bit why it is so often the case in birds, but in many other organisms as well, that it's the male that is yeah. engaging in these really We're showy behaviors. We should get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I realized that you know, especially with mammals, we're so, um, in some ways, sexist in the way we, we think about things because a lot of mammals, basically what happens is the female makes such a large investment per offspring as opposed to the male. So the, there's a very different, what we call life history strategy. It's just like an investment strategy, except with DNA, where um, females are very much going for quality over quantity and if both sexes have an equal amount to invest then you just if you're going to have a lot invested per offspring you're not really going to have as many offspring as the sex that by definition in biology the sex that produces the smaller sex cells so sperm are always males and the sex that produces the bigger sex cells eggs are the, the females that's just how we define it in biology and so um in the case of mammals especially, but to some extent birds, you have this situation where males just invest less per offspring than females. And so most of their investment seems to be um, tied up in trying to attract mates rather than caring for offspring and then being tied up in caring for offspring. Um, but with birds, it's, it's a bit more egalitarian than with mammals, partly because I suppose um, well, the argument goes that with birds, for whatever reason, you often need both parents. You need two individuals to take care of the offspring and raise them successfully. And so in a lot of birds, it just doesn't work out if one or both parties abscond. The, the offspring won't develop and, and, and survive and fledge. And so a lot of birds at least have biparental care. Um, but yeah, I've got a whole chapter that's on sex role reversals just to, just to hammer home the fact that it's not always the case that males are the showy sex and the competitive sex and uh, that females are the sort of admiring ones that do the choosing. So, so that's, and that, that's a case of difference in investments. So there are a few species like chacanas and um, spotted sandpipers and this very interesting bird called the black kukul in Africa, where the females actually are the ones that sort of invest less per offspring and they just, they just lay a lot of eggs and have a bunch of males on the territory who take care of, who do all the childcare. So the males make the nest, they defend, they incubate the eggs, they um, take care of the chicks. And in a lot of these systems, there's very high predation. So the males are often 
in short supply and the, the nests get predated a lot. And so the female just sort of goes around and lays eggs repeatedly for all her little uh, her attendant males and then moves on to the next male. And the males are tied up with taking care of the kids and they invest a huge amount in doing that. And, and so in those species, the females are the bigger ones and they, they fight over access to males and they fight over access to territories and they do all the things that make them look like knights jousting as opposed to that being the males. I also found this chapter on sex role reversal to be one of the most interesting parts of the book. And and the degree of cooperation between these males in yeah. kind of cooperatively rearing uh, the offspring of, yeah, these promiscuous females, I thought was just amazing. <laughs> yes. Well, and to some extent, I mean, well, so this is the sort of um, bit of the book where I'm not so... You, you can see that my worldview is not one where uh, everything is sweetness and light. So, you know, the, the whole view that monogamy is something of a stalemate. So I think in the case where males are cooperating to take care of the offspring of a single female, they just, they don't have a better option. Um, and to some extent, with, with, monog- with all the cases of monogamy, both, both sexes, don't have a better option. So, you know, but, but in, in the case of... It's the a limited dynamics, investment strategy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you know, the, there's this wonderful work done by Nick Davis, who's a professor at Cambridge, um, on these tiny, very, very drab birds called dunnocks, that are also known as hedge sparrows in Old English. And they're just brown and grey, and no one really notices them. Uh, but it turns out that in a very small area like the Cambridge Botanic Gardens, you've got all the variations of mating systems taking place. And that's partly because like Central Park and Prospect Park and all these beautifully landscaped human gardens, there's such a um, variety of habitat types in a very, very small area, which you seldom get in nature, actually. And so it's a sort of perfect natural experiment um, where to, to test the idea that in different, um, if you have different distributions of resources, it makes it easier or harder for either sex to defend a territory, to defend resources and to defend a mate. And there's this whole economics of keeping, finding and keeping a mate exclusive that, that is played out with the Dunnocks in the Botanic Gardens that I just find um, wonderful. And Nick has his own book that describes all this, but it's just so dramatic because you've got, you know, from, from both sexes' points of view. So from the male's point of view, he would like to have, ideally, he has more, okay, I shouldn't say he would like to have, but he has more offspring, he has more reproductive success if he's mated to two females. And the same is true for females. They have more offspring if they're mated to two males that are attending them. Because in that case, you know, they, they have the parental help of two males. Um, but, Sorry, can I ask quickly? Yeah. So is it, is it the case that the number of offspring is highest when both sexes engage in this strategy? Or no. must it be the case that the female has two males that are solely mating with that one female? 
so, and vice so versa. yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. there's that. That's why you have this conflict of interest, right? Because, right. Um, yeah. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. So, so from the females' point of view, it would be better to have two males exclusively, um, if not exclusively mating with her, at least mating with her enough that they're both helping her with parental care. That they're invested in her offspring. They're investing, yeah, that they're investing in her offspring so that the, the, the trio has more offspring fledged. And similarly, from a male's point of view, um, if he has two females that he's mating with, that aren't mating with other males, so he's, he's the main father or the sole father of both nests, then obviously he has more kids too. But the problem is both, both sexes, the, the other sex, the one who's part of the harem, is, doing, is worse off. Right. So, so, you know, a female that's sharing a male with another female ends up having fewer offspring than if she was monogamously mated or had two males at her disposal and vice versa. And so, so you have this conflict that keeps going on that you can observe um, where there are lots of chases all the time because females will try to elude. If, if, if a female has a territory that's big enough and has enough food in it to accommodate both her and two males, then she does have two males hanging around in her territory. But both of them are constantly trying to make sure that, especially, so, so usually there's a sort of little dominance hierarchy between the two males. So there'll be an alpha and a beta male. And the alpha is always trying to make sure she's not rushing off into the shrubbery with the number two, with the junior male. And it's really hard for him to, to do this, right? Because these are, I mean, they're, they're called hedge sparrows because they spend all the time. He must be so stressed like, out all the hedges. time. <laughs> yeah. And there's this trade-off because if he, doesn't, if he doesn't have time to eat, then he probably won't keep his alpha status because he'll get weak. So um, I mean, Nick has these hysterical um, things that even if you read the academic papers, I think this, it's in there somewhere that, Sometimes the females um, are so good at eluding the alpha male and going off with number two that um, if alpha can't find her, he just looks for the beta male <laughs> as a shortcut to finding the, the female that they're both mated to. Um, and, and then if that. This gets complicated because sometimes you have two females and two males, or, or you know, two females and three males, yeah. or something, and then and then it's really it gets very complicated. Um, but yeah, and and the female on the flip side, the female has to try. So you could say if alpha male, and according to the handicap hypothesis, if the alpha male is bigger and stronger, he should be more attractive, and he should have better genes or something. And so why is the female even bothering to mate with the second male? And I guess there, there are two main benefits she could get. One is if she doesn't mate with him, she's unlikely to get his help caring for the offspring. Whereas if she does mate with him, then she's got two males, two, two dads helping out with feeding the chicks. So that's definitely a benefit there. And then um, it turns out that sometimes the beta male, if he never gets to mate with a female at all, will um, there have been observations that he 
probably sabotages the nest and the mm. clutch. Yeah. So she might lose everything if she doesn't sort of at least keep him mildly. So there's you know, spiteful think, behavior. Thinking that he has some chance of being of fathering some of the chicks in the nest. Um, and and yeah. yeah, I mean, the jury is out about how conscious the birds are about all these decisions, but it's quite sophisticated, the, the behavior. Never yeah, it's an, it's an elaborate repertoire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> calculus of <laughs> strategies. And, and then the, the other thing that's always fascinating with the Daleks is this um, behavior that, so, so birds, a lot, most birds don't have uh, copulatory organs. They just have these little holes called cloacas, which they, you know, excrete out of and mate, mate with. And so they just touch cloacas and mating is very quick and sperm is exchanged. Um, but one of the best stories Nick has is of him observing a male Danuk pecking very vigorously at a female's cloaca and then watching, waiting, until she sort of extruded this little white package. <laughs> and, and and then the male would sort of... So, so birds tend to turn one eye down, whichever eye that they're using to look at something with. They'll turn their head sideways and look. Um, and so this he's male inspecting would sort the of, package. Yeah, inspect the package. <laughs> and then he's like satisfied that she'd done this enough times, then he'd copulate with her. And so <laughs> Nick got very excited because he realized this was probably sperm from yeah. a previous mating. And so this was the male's way of checking that he would that there wasn't someone else's sperm that were going to be competing with his. <laughs> this r- reminds me of some insects. Like I think uh, yes, dragonflies yes. have these yeah. elaborate appendages that they right. use to sweep out. Yeah. I know, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, th- I don't think there's any evidence of actual scrapers um, sweeping out the female's reproductive tract first. But yeah, insects are wonderful for this kind of thing. Yeah. And there's one of, there's a height, there's even a video or something of that, right? I think I've seen, I, I, yeah. I have to remember, but I think I've seen film of that, yeah. Yeah, I think the BBC probably... I'm, I don't remember if it was an animation or if it's actual That's probably footage, an but, animation, but yeah. yeah, at least from the inside, but wow, fantastic, yeah. Um, that, of course, also reminds me of the you know very famous case of ducks. And ducks, their, I know. Yeah, <laughs> probably going which to I'm get sure to everyone knows about, yeah. Yeah, well, I used to... Um, one of the things I used to do in Cambridge was, you know, everyone, every time you have visitors, you take them punting. And they're all punting? these people. So, so punting is this thing people like to do on the river in Oxford and Cambridge, where you have a flat bottom boat and you pole it along with a very long pole. And um, it is a very nice way to see the, the, the very beautiful colleges. Um, it's called the Backs and things like King's College or Trinity. Uh, where Newton was, and yeah, it's a it's a big tourist thing. It's like gondolas in Venice or something. So you you always see people with their spiel about, and in this library is where you have original copies of Winnie the Pooh or whatever it is, Newton's Principia, and and there would always be these mallets in the river as well. So I realized part of my preamble was usually revolving around the the duck forced copulation. 
<laughs> this is in character one thing, yeah. <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have people in neighboring punts sort of looking askance at us because everyone was going, oh, how cute, look at the ducks and let's give them bread and so forth. And then, and then from our boat would be all these tales of hmm, unsavory duck, behavior. Duck rape, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> so since we're on the topic of conflict, um, mm. so not just yeah. co- cooperative brood, brooding and other cooperative behaviors and cooperative reproductive behaviors, but also conflict. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about brood parasitism, which is another thing that yes. I know that you know a great deal about and that you have and some that wonderful... I really like. Well, actually, yeah. on the topic, since we're talking about ducks, I mean, ducks are one of the um, most widespread in terms of within species parasitism. So this is otherwise sometimes known as egg dumping, where a female will find some other someone else's nest, but it's another female of her own species, and she'll sneak her eggs into that nest. So I don't know if you've ever seen... Um, I remember camping along a river last summer and seeing these female megansas with something like oh, close to 20 ducklings behind them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No way. <laughs> that female had laid off those eggs. <laughs> but um, So she's someone's nanny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's taking care of her own kids, but someone else managed to sneak the eggs in. And of course, um, because of the forced copulations, we've got complicated paternity patterns as well, which is one of the explanations um, or possible hypotheses for why you often see hybrid ducks. Because... Um, you know, if, if you've got a bunch of males who aren't sure what they're doing, or who have nothing better to do, rather, um, <laughs> because the females are all tied up incubating or, or caring for chicks, that they might as well try and score a mating if they can. And if, if that false copulation happens with another species, then they might do that. It's also the result of imprinting. Though. Um, but anyway, sorry, sorry. To get back to um, yeah. the brood parasitism. So there's, yeah, I, I think what fascinated me and it people you know biologists quote darwin like like one would quote the bible or something but (laughs) he he has this wonderful chapter on instinct and on hard problems to explain through natural selection and one of the instincts he brings up is this this whole dynamic of cuckoos which in the common cuckoo of cuckoo clocks in europe and asia is a brood parasite. And in that case, what you've got is a species that's um, evolved to be so specialized on being a parasite, meaning that it doesn't do any childcare at all. It outsources everything beyond the egg-laying stage to a different species. That are there all these fantastically intricate adaptations that have evolved both on the um, on the side of the parasite, like the cuckoo. Um, as well as on the side of the nanny, the foster parent species, because obviously it's it's bad news for your um, reproductive output if all your kids get killed and, and you're spending all your time and energy raising an offspring that's a foundling that's completely unrelated to you. That 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 kind of behavior would just, you know, not not get any further, right? It'd be a complete dead end from a evolutionary point of view um so so things like cuckoos 
because they've been evolving with their hosts for so long, their their foster parent species, there are all these wonderful old natural history observations like um, egg collections because the Brits have this penchant for collecting eggs. <laughs> and I used to love going into um, old bookshops or print shops and getting these prints of eggs or looking at them where you've got different races of cuckoo so different cuckoo females and all the different eggs that they would lay all, all beautifully illustrated and they look like Easter eggs or something and then the different species that they were they had evolved to mimic basically both in terms of colour and egg pattern and there are lots of photos in the book about well, with examples of that kind of mimicry, um, both in the common cuckoo and other brood parasites. But yeah, that 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 kind of conflict is is fantastic. Can you because can it, you see yeah. evolutionary yeah. dynamics by looking at illustrations of cuckoo eggs within recorded kind of rec- fairly recent human yeah, history? Yeah, that's such a great that's such a great um, question. So I can't remember if I got. A chance to, or this got cut out of the book, but um, one of my advisors in Cambridge, one of my postdoc advisors, Claire Spottiswood, showed this beautifully in Zambia. So she teamed up with one of these uh, avid egg collectors, and he had at least 40 years' worth of eggs collected on his farm in Zambia. And just in those 40 years, you could see a change in the frequency. So so this is a completely independent evolution of brood parasitism in birds. It's not cuckoos. They're called cuckoo finches, but they're, they're more related to finches, basically. And um, they're also very specialized. So you've got different females that lay different types of egg colors and patterns that mimic the eggs of different host species. And she found that in 40 years, uh, you could see a sort of change in the kinds of the frequency, the, the how common certain egg colors and patterns were. So it turns out that one of the colors that the cuckoos had not, the cuckoo finches had not evolved to mimic, was this weird olive green mixture. And they they'd done almost everything else. So they could lay white eggs, blue eggs, and reddish brown eggs, and different shades of blue and brown. But they couldn't make this intermediate greenish color, which we're, we're guessing is a combination of the reddish pigment and the bluish pigment. Um, That's amazing. So they have the physiological resources to synthesize the pigment, pigment but they just haven't yet evolved yeah. somehow. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in terms of bird egg colors, um, I think chickens pretty much have, from what biologists have figured out so far, they're just two pigments. Um, that that account for most of the all the colors on eggshells. One is produces the bluish color, and one produces the brownish color. And then I suppose it's like paints to mix them. Yeah. But yeah, exactly how that mixing is done is definitely <laughs> something that people are fascinated by. Um, and we haven't worked it out. And and never mind the squiggles or the spots or you know how how you pattern an egg is amazing and not worked out. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. So there's a kind of arms race between the That's parasite right. and the host, 
where yeah. the host is attempting to kind of identify the eggs of the parasite or discriminate somehow between yeah. her own eggs and those of the parasite. And then the parasite is trying to constantly keep up with the host's ability right. to discriminate. And I suppose I forgot that in, in real time, I mean, another great example is um, the great spotted cuckoo in Spain, which is paras- which parasitizes the magpie. And, you know, corvids like magpies and crows and ravens are, tend to be very smart. So the magpies have no trouble learning quite quickly that this is bad news to, <laughs> to have a foreign egg and, and recognize a foreign egg. Um, but what's really cool is that they can be, not only can they learn not to um, accept a cuckoo egg. Sorry, is the neighbor's dog? That, no, it's fine. That oh, good. Um, they, they also learn to stop rejecting the eggs because the great spotted cuckoo does this bizarre thing of, or, or pretty clever thing too, of mafia tactics, basically. So they monitor... They, although they don't, you know, actually make the nest or incubate the eggs and so forth, they they do. Yeah, it's a huge investment. It seems like <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do invest enough time uh, keeping an eye on these foster parents to make sure that they're doing the due diligence in terms of rearing the kids. And oh, I sorry, just... when you say, when you say mafia tactics, is, is there evidence that not only are they monitoring, but they're kind of intimidating? That can't be the case, right? That there's well, so so. Basically, they monitor, and if the magpies toss out the cuckoo eggs, they, the, the cuckoos come in and destroy the nest. Um, so so, so there they're... are two interpretations no. of this. One, one is it's called mafia tactics, which I kind of like the sound of, but you know that's imputing a lot of consciousness in the birds, blah, blah, blah. You, you could also say that it's just they're monitoring it, and um, it's almost a good way to, in a sense, the, the, the other metaphor people use is farming. So, um, exactly, there's it's like kind of artificial selection, yeah. Yeah, or, or it's um, the, the other comparison is the way um, male, lang- male monkeys that enter a new troop or male lions that enter new pride and depose the previous land, they, they commit infanticide on all the previous male's offspring so that they can, in a very limited time, father their own, right? So, so you could say that's what the brood parasite is doing too, that if, if it's not got any offspring left in this nest, it has to trigger a renesting so that it can parasitize the next nest. Uh, so, so the difference here is the great spotted cuckoo is what we call a less virulent parasite. So virulence exactly like you would use for something like the flu or COVID-19 or whatever. Um, they, they're not as deadly. Uh, so, so things like the common cuckoo, the moment, well, I mean, they're, they're really bad news for the host because essentially once you've got a common cuckoo that lays its eggs in your nest, guaranteed all your own offspring will not survive. Because first the female cuckoo sort of removes one of your eggs while she lays it while she lays her own. And then the moment her chick hatches, the, like the first thing it does is destroy all the competition, is is basically eject all the eggs or chicks out of the nest so that it's the only surviving chick in the nest. Uh, great spotted cuckoos don't do this. So they often get raised 
alongside the host chicks. So they're, they're less costly to the host. Um, but it does mean that if they see the host, if the adult cuckoos see the host, the magpies chuck their own children out, you know, the, the cuckoo chicks or the cuckoo eggs out of the nest. Um, if they don't, if they don't destroy the magpies nest, then the magpie is going to proceed with raising its own offspring and the cuckoo is not going to have another chance to lay its eggs in that pair's nest, right? So, so if they, if they come in and destroy the nest, then they're forcing the magpies to start again and then it gives them another chance to, to stick their eggs in. Um, so that's the farming. That's more the kind of less Machiavellian interpretation of this behavior. Um, but, but yeah, and, and the other cool thing about that system is that because the cuckoo chicks are often raised or almost always raised alongside the magpie chicks, um, in some cases, it, there's evidence that the cuckoo chicks actually improve the reproductive success of the, the magpies, which is kind of nice. This is all, this is the sweeter side of things. So, um, I think they do it in a couple of ways. One is the cuckoos are better at deter, the cuckoo chicks are better at deterring predators than the magpie chicks. They, they, I can't remember what they do exactly. I think they spit at the predators or something. But they, they, they have some very awful anti-predator substance which, which keeps predators away and makes nests less vulnerable to predation than, than if there was no cuckoo chick in the nest. And then I think because they're so good at begging, the poor parents end up bringing in more food for everyone than if you didn't have this terrible cuckoo chick in the nest. So, so maybe at least for that season, it's good for for all those magpie chicks to have the cuckoo in the nest, but it might not be good for the parents' long-term reproductive because success. They're so because they're so weakened by having yeah, to feed they all. they're so weakened by this one bout <laughs> of extra feeding that they die earlier and don't have, many, don't have as many kids in the long run That's over amazing. their lifespan. Well, um, Wenfei, I, yeah. there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> I'm know. afraid we're out of time. But I mean, this brings up another issue which, <laughs> which you discuss in your book, which is yeah. um, kind of intergenerational conflict and conflict yes. between siblings. And so there's, anyway, it's just to say that yeah, you should go tons. out and buy this book. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a book that's just full of amazing natural history, but that uses this amazing natural history to explain some of these biological principles and biological concepts and something we haven't really talked about, but is also worth just mentioning again. It's just a beautifully illustrated book. So congratulations, Wanfei, on the publication of Bird Love. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Lucas. 